Welcome to Beyond the Plates, industry talks by Le Cordon Bleu. In this podcast, we get some real insight into the food and hospitality industry from a variety of renowned chefs, industry experts, and Le Cordon Bleu alumni. Join us as we hear the fascinating stories and unique experiences behind some of the best known names in the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, hello from London. Hope you are well and safe wherever you are. I have a pleasure to bring in Chef Masaki Sugisaki, the owner and managing director, come executive chef of SW3 Dining's SW3 in Chelsea. In this session, we will be kind of going through the cultural aspect of Japanese cuisine. Just to give you a bit of a brief introduction to Chef Masaki, uh, Chef Masaki was born in Saitama Prefecture in Japan. He was surrounded by food as the eldest son of a family running traditional Kaiseki restaurant uh, in Saitama. And at the very old, early age of around 23, he traveled to London where he started working in several Japanese restaurants across the capital to gain experience in how Japanese cuisine is served in other parts of the world outside Japan. After returning to Japan and taking over the role of head chef in his own restaurant, he moved on to Tokyo where he was he became an executive chef. And then he in 2005, he moved back to London where he opened up the Nobu Berkeley Hotel, the Nobu Berkeley Street where he met Tomonari Shiba, the founder of Dinings. And after a few years, they came together as a force to, as business partners and opened up Dinings SW3 in Chelsea. Now, Chef Masaki is at the helm as executive chef and managing director over a dec decade. And it'll be great for Chef Masaki to kind of grace this participants with the understanding of the huge scope of Japanese cuisine and its relevance in the international dining scene. Masaki-san. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm so excited and a uh, huge pleasure for me to represent Japanese culture. Although I'm living outside of Japan for a long time, but I do my best uh, to uh, introduce um, cultural side of Japanese cuisine. Um, as uh, I was introduced, I've been um, in this industry for quite a long time. I was born and raised in the, uh, the traditional Japanese restaurant family. So funny thing is that I used to hate it because uh, my parents forced me to work in a restaurant there as soon as I joined high school. And while my friends are playing around, I needed to stuck in the kitchen. So, you know, it was always a nightmare for me. But now I'm loving it and really appreciate what I've learned uh, until now. And I'm hoping that uh, I can share within this given short period of time that uh, I can share some of my point of view what the Japanese cuisine all about. <clears throat> um, instead of focusing on its technique or detailed information about you know, the uh, ingredients whatsoever. Um, the first thing I want to look into is that the, uh, the important as of the uh, Japanese culture on its own. Food is always connected to uh, its culture. Uh, in case of Japan, obviously it's the same and it's deeply connected. And uh, uh, nowadays, because of the uh, evolutions 
um, especially uh, within the uh, informations, uh, exchanging the information is totally changed the whole world structure. And that gives you a lots of lots of informations on its own within your reach. All you need is just a tapping into a Google and then uh, press enter, then you will gain much, well, a wide range of uh, uh, informations. Um, however, this informations uh, is causing another concern from my point of view. Um, that is because of the, uh, what is that, the, uh, the food culture on its own, especially in Japanese cuisine, I believe. But that's simply because um, this is how I trained um, so that, uh, especially in Japanese cuisine, um, information is just a tool. Um, but the most important thing is that the cultural background and then also the, uh, the building my own um, theme, why I'm cooking it, what I'm doing for. Without having this, um, taking the amount of, uh, lots of amount of information could make you blind and then you are drowning in, in the middle of the, uh, let's say, information seas, in a way. And that is the nightmare because the cultural aspect is going to be lost. That's why I want to look into this part instead of technical side today. Hope this information will give you the uh, total picture, even if it's a brief, but the total picture of Japanese culture on its own. Um, related to food industry, especially, and then the, uh, it's going to give you the correct information of Japanese culture background. Um, then the, uh, you can use whichever the information available on the internet or books in a correct way, and then uh, it's going to uh, also help your personal development. That is the aim for me to have today. So starting with the, the social background, now, because of this internet, um, then they have a book or media uh, technologies, um, information is everywhere. And then this changed the structure of the industry, I believe. Um, how it's changed is that uh, there are no cultural borders within, which means um, culture, individual culture, which means, you know, the character of the cuisine is built was built uh, based on this, uh, let's say, cultural border, but now is disappearing. So in a good way, it's developing the new standard of world cuisine. It was used to be like, you know, the, uh, what is that, the uh, separated each category, but now it's combining everything together, which is the good things um, in terms of uh, its evolutions and then the developments. However, it comes with the concern of the traditions. Um, it can cause the loss of traditional culture or authenticity as well. Um, the uh, this is uh, food culture is all about the um, you know the things being built not by our within our generation but it's been passed over and then evaluated into the next level by repeating this process food culture on its own is developed along with the culture on its own so uh, this is something I really want to uh, focus on when we deal with the informations and by doing this we can keep this good portion of the traditions and then uh, puts more new style um, or develop the, uh, the new style based on the traditions. That's the, uh, the, our challenge, I believe. 
So the uh, in order to do so, the understanding the cultural background is obviously comes to uh, main topic, and this is the kind of information um, you can achieve. However, is split into many different um, parts, such as like a historical parts, or if it's a sushi, sushi individual, tempura, tempura individual. So what I'm trying to do is that to combine everything together. So um, first thing first, let's look into the uh, the detail. Which is the uh, the first of all, I want everybody to look into the uh, cultural back, uh, background, especially social structures. Um, even modern world of Japan now, we have uh, two main backbones within the social structures. What we call social backbones. Um, it's divided by the location to start with, where the, uh, the where it used to be a capital is. Um, it was first of all, it was uh, Kyoto. It was, uh, you know, quite a long time ago. Kyoto was the capital of Japan, so uh, it was controlled everything from Kyoto. So they developed the, uh, their own culture, advanced culture, and then then it moved to Tokyo after that, and that changed the uh, the, the social structures and then the uh, the value of each elements what we deal with on the daily life. And so, what is the uh, the difference um, in the Kyoto, the noble society? Is being built bet uh, between this, um, you know, the, uh, during this time. Uh, then, the, uh, instead of that, uh, when the, uh, the capital moved to Tokyo, um, samurai society took over the control. And these two made a huge difference. The samurai society is all about the Bushido thing. Probably you've heard of Bushido, it's all about live or die, but, you know, the, uh, they um, try to look for the beauty of the life by sacrificing, uh, not to afraid to sacrifice their life. So the, uh, compared to the noble society, it was completely different. And as the, uh, the society structure changed, obviously its value has changed. So what is the actual cultural, uh, cultural difference? In case of Kyoto, it was highly sophisticated. And uh, means what? Um, basically, this is being built within the royal family, let's say, so that every single thing they do well, needs to be sophisticated. However, in a samurai society, it's all about chic and vibrance. It's more like, um, what is that? The focused on the spot you are living now, because you are ready, always ready to sacrifice your life. So uh, you need to enjoy your life. That is the, uh, the basic difference. And in interestingly, this uh, cultural difference is made a few interesting differences in between, tangible difference, such as like, easy example um, is going to be the soy sauce. In Tokyo, what we know soy sauce is being used, commonly used in the Tokyo area. But in Kyoto area, normally they prefer light soy sauce. The difference between light soy sauce and the, uh, normal soy sauce is that the light soy sauce contains more amount of salt, but less color and less flavor. So it's much more sophisticated in a way. It's going to push up the, uh, the original flavor of the ingredients against the uh, normal soy sauce. As you know, the flavor is quite a strong aroma together with the, uh, the, the rest of the umami flavor whatsoever. So uh, it's more aggressive in a way. So it's more vibrant, for example. And other interesting, rather funny uh, cultural difference. Uh, probably um, uh, you guys know uh, freshwater eel, unagi. 
Basically, what we do traditionally is to fillet it and skewer them and grill them and dip it into a soy sauce, sweet soy sauce, and then grill it a few times. And then, you know, they put it on top of the bed of steamed rice. And that's served as the unagi uh, donburi, what we call. And this uh, way to fillet the uh, unagi, freshwater ale, is completely the opposite between Kyoto and Tokyo. This uh, reason is rather funny, actually. The, uh, in the samurai culture, the, uh, the worst things you can do is to uh, shame on yourself. And then if you ashamed yourself, what happens is that you do this awful uh, tradition, harakiri, which is basically the short legs of knife. You need to stab your stomach and cut it through uh, in the uh, length way. And then you kill yourself. And then that is the apologize uh, towards to the uh, your master or whoever. So cutting the uh, the filleting the fish from belly side is a bad luck. Therefore, um, in case of the Kyoto area, they uh, fillet the fish from the belly side, as same as the other fish. But in case of Tokyo, they fillet it from the back side. So in many different ways, these two different social backbone is affecting and then still holding the main part of the Japanese culture, including the food industry as well. Um, that is the quite interesting thing. And next thing I need to mention is that uh, the period of time we close our country, which is called Sakoku, over 220 years, it's about 200, until 20, uh, 200 years ago, um, Japanese government back in that time decided to close uh, our country, our border, from the other countries. So literally, where, uh, just like where we are now, um, we decided to be locked down completely. That's because of the religious, uh, um, you know, the, uh, what is that? the Christian cultures coming in and affecting the Buddhism, blah, 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 that complicated structure, but let's not go into that. But uh, because we isolate ourselves from all the outside of the world, um, during this time, we were in a way left alone from the worldwide evolutions uh, in terms of technologies, in terms of whichever the culture is. Instead, we built our own unique culture. So these 200 years, when the world is going through inventing a lot of technologies or you know, industrial revolutions whatsoever, Japan was left alone. Instead, we developed a really unique character of the country. I think this is a qu uh, quite an important thing uh, to mention about because, uh, as you know, Japan has got quite a Mm, how can I say, quite um, mysterious side of it. Like, if you say Japan, what do you think about Japan? Some people still mentioning about the samurai, which doesn't exist anymore, but in a way it's a lot of traditional, beautiful temples, cultures, versus modern technology, organized society. So these two sides of the, uh, the culture, one side of it, traditional side, is being built within this period, including the food culture as well. So I think it's worth it to remember. And next thing I want to mention is that culture of takunin. Uh, you can say we sometimes use the word shokunin as well. This means basically it's artisan in Japanese. However, um, Japanese culture has really geeky side of it in a way. I don't know if it's coming, coming from the Bushido or Wabi-Sabi spirit or whatsoever, but when we dig into detail, we dig into the deepest level, possible level, and then you sacrifice yourself. 
That is the culture of it. And that is the quite important element to build the Japanese culture as it is now. And that is the, uh, the crucial parts of Japanese culture made difference between the, uh, compared to the other uh, part of the world. And what is the uh, mentality or aim of the, uh, the Takumi culture? They pursue the individual theme. Instead of a wide range of theme, they choose the one theme and then the deepest possible level they dig into. And then their learning process will never end. They spend literally whole life to develop or to learn uh, in this uh, specific narrow range of uh, topics. And this is applied to every single industry, not only food, but the other thing as well. If you look into the, uh, the recent history of Japan, Japan, everybody knows Japanese electrical, you know, the equipment was the highest technology whatsoever. But if you consider that history-wise, as we cross the less, uh, you know, the, uh, the, our border for a long, long period of time to, from the outside of the world, and then we left alone, and then the foreign country had a much more advanced technologies. But once we opened the door in a minute, soon after that, Japan became one of the top level. That's based on this culture of Takumi. So this is the uh, kind of good example of this. Um, probably you've heard when you enter sushi industry, for example, you need to spend the first 10 years without making actual sushi. You, all you can do is that the learning slowly by slowly, learning how to cook rice, how to mix rice and vinegar together, and then how to fit the fish. But you are not allowed to stand in front of customer. This is based on this uh, culture as well. It sounds ridiculous, but it's a common sense in a way in Japan. And the other uh, things is uh, I need to mention is the respect and the appreciation. This is also very, very deeply, deeply uh, connected to the everyday life of Japan, not in uh, only the uh, autism culture, but uh, everywhere. As you enter the uh, school, this is uh, exactly what you learn. You need to respect other people. You need to appreciate what you are given. So that is uh, the base of well-organized country. Uh, in a way, um, if you, for example, uh, go to the, uh, the train stations, the uh, old train is comes exactly on time, no one minute different. If you are late for one minute, it's going to be a big issue. That is, uh, you know, the level of geekiness in a way Japanese society are built on, and then in the with in the food industry as well. And um, when I entered the kitchen for the first time. Um, first thing I learned is this, which is understanding what you are doing for, which is like, you know, we are cooking food for the guest and cooking the food. Yes, is the, uh, the simply is uh, in the simplest way is sustaining our own life, but uh, sustaining our own life is the consuming of other life. That is how it works so that we need to respect and appreciate what is uh, given to us. And by doing this, what they are trying to say is not only the uh, um, understanding that it's um, uh, importance of it, but uh, Japanese cuisine is all about focusing on each individual ingredients. And then rather than adding a lot of different kind of spices, flavors whatsoever, what we are trying to aim is that to take off unnecessary part. If it's the fish, take off the fishiness. 
take off the uh, the fat, the excess fat, uh, fat or whatever, and then try to keep the best out of it. Uh, then keep as simple as possible. So this respect and appreciation is the base of Japanese cuisine, which is very simple and clean flavor. That is the uh, what is that? The um, the most important part when it's come to a cooking process. So this, even if it's in the same Asian uh, area, for example, Chinese food, uh, Japanese food has got completely different characters. Although if we, um, we are using the similar kind of ingredients, the way we cook, where we um, uh, finalize the dish is completely different. That's based on this as well, together with the other facts, uh, which I'm going to uh, go through later. And then the, yeah, this same philosophy, excuse me, will apply to the skills and equipment as well. Um, uh, as you know, um, Japanese cooking techniques such as like knife technique, for example, is extremely sophisticated. It's not because we focus on the techniques on its own, but it's because of the respect towards to the ingredients. Um, if you are using the, uh, if you don't have a skills, obviously you cannot keep the best condition of the ingredients. If you are filleting the fish, you need to uh, minimize its negative effect and keeping the best condition as much as you can. That is your ultimate goal. But in order to do so, you need a good skills. And then not only the skills, that applies to equipment as well. Um, that's why everybody are getting crazy nowadays for Japanese knife. Reason why Japanese knife are so good is because of this on its own. These topics as it is. Um, for instance, sashimi knife has got long blade with the kind of a thin uh, blade as well, and one side is cut off in angle. This is designed just to cut the fish in the best conditions. It tend to be European way is cutting the things from the top to bottom. Obviously, it's, there's a slight uh, sliding mo uh, motion a little bit of it, but in case of Japan, we just uh, slide the knife all the way. The, uh, the long blade. And by doing this, you can minimize the damage the actual ingredients will, call, uh, will receive. If you squash the ingredients, obviously the each cell is gonna be squashed and then bruised, even if it's a vegetable fish, exactly the same. However, if you slide them by using the, uh, the weight of the blade on its own, then you can minimize that. By doing this, you can keep the flavor without losing it, and then you can keep the original texture so that uh, you can um, prepare the dish with the best, best condition from out of the, uh, the same ingredients. That's why um, Japanese knife has got so many different uh, shape and size, and then the specific use of it. That is the, uh, you know, the based on this uh, respect and appreciation as well. So as you can see uh, up to here now, Japanese culture is very geeky in a way, but in a good way, I believe. And that is the, uh, that started to be recognized from all over the world now, and then it became quite a uh, trend nowadays. Um, yeah, uh, okay, so there's gonna be a lot of talk. So I moved on to the first Q&A time. If there's any questions uh, whatsoever, please feel, feel free. Chef Masaki, we have a question from a gentleman called Perry. Sure. Um, 
culture of takumi in the culinary sense and the making sushi, how long will a chef take to master the aspect of making sushi? <laughs> very good questions. Very good questions. If you want to learn very traditional, authentic one, 10 years is the good amount of time. Even, even luckily, if you could uh, gain this opportunity to make a sushi in front of the customer less than 10 years time, still 10 years is the minimum amount of time you need to uh, go through. At the end of the day, I will talk about the season as well. Japan has got four completely different seasons and each season has uh, different uh, ingredients available, availability. And depending on that, where you cook, where you do, is completely different. So 10 years of experience at the end of the day is just that you are repeating the 10 times, um, you know, the, uh, each ingredient 10 times within 10 uh, years, which is not good enough. And then even if it's like filleting the fish or cutting the rice, which is the, uh, the literal meaning is that the cutting, but uh, you know, the, uh, the mixing the sushi rice with the vinegar. It's a simple uh, mixing process. However, by repeating it, 100 times, 200 times, 300 times. Each time when you focus, you will gain more and you will make uh, the better result. That's how I believe in Japan. I hope that is answering your question. Yes, you did. Good, thank you. <laughs> um, another one. When, the, sure. when will be the umami of the fish at its peak? Is it oh. when it's freshly caught? <laughs> or after some time? Few hours okay. Later? And why? Okay, so uh, that's a good question. Uh, umami of the fish and seafood, which I will touch the base later on, is uh, first of all, it started from the season. Um, each fish, fish and seafood, obviously, based on as well, has got a season to it. And then the, uh, the what we call season in English and Japan is slightly different, so I'm going to touch the base later. But the, uh, the other fact is that uh, when you kill the fish, um, Basically, what the people think is that the flesher is better, the flavor, but it is not necessarily like that. Uh, as you, well, just like all the other animals, after you kill, what happened? They get really stiff. All the muscle became really tense. And then as the time goes, what we call aging process, it starts to relax. Then its enzymes start to breaking down the, uh, the uh, whichever the minerals it has and then start creating the umami acid which is like a glutamic acid or inosic acid and then that is what we call the uh, that tasty part so if you the best thing is that they apply exactly the same method as the uh, dry aging process of the meat what they do is that after you kill the meat you don't eat straight away you develop the flavor and tenderize the meat and that is the exact process you need to go through for the fish and seafood as well but uh, in case of Japan, there's another part of the culture that you enjoy the freshness. So the, uh, probably you've heard the, uh, the technique or dish called usuzukuri, which is like a calpacho thing, especially applied to the, uh, the white fish. Um, fresh fish is cut into really thin piece, and then you enjoy its texture. Instead of umami flavor, you enjoy the texture. So if it's extremely fresh one, you enjoy the texture. So customer, uh, well, experienced guests are not looking into the flavor or umami, but the texture. And if you are looking into the umami flavor, then you need to uh, you know, use the aged, in a way, matured fish instead of fresh one. But obviously, compared to the meat, the uh, maturing process of the fish is a lot faster. 
depending on the fish <clears throat> and depending how you prepare, the time is going to be different, but it can be a three days start with. But the, the things, uh, the fish like the tuna, for example, it can be two weeks uh, to be matured as well. So it varies, but uh, this aging process, uh, well, after the aging process, that's the time umami flavor is maximized. Yeah, we got a few more questions coming in, but I will try to make it a bit as condensed as possible sure. by the time. Uh, quickly, if you can just probably uh, put a light on how well the Kaiseki style has translated over to the Western fine dining. Mm, okay, so um, which actually I'm going to touch the base later on is included this uh, course. Um, if, if that's the case, then we can probably, uh, I can we can come back to this later. Okay, yeah, let's come I back have, to later. I one or few questions. Is it possible to make soy sauce at home? Do you recommend any resources or information on this craft? And at the same time, do have another question relating to soy. What is the rationale and significance of soy, seaweed, and miso in Japanese cuisine? Well, I know it is two, two different aspects combined together. So if you can just probably give a bit of an understanding of how to make a soy sauce at home. Okay, the uh, soy sauce can be made, but I don't recommend that because the, uh, it's a lot of things to do with the fermentation and then also the quality of the ingredients. And we are dealing with the, the fungus, which will be uh, quite an unusual fungus you are dealing with, which is a koji fungus. And the temperature and humidity also involve. Um, making the miso is a lot easier, actually, because it contains much more amount of salt and then the, uh, the good quality of uh, ingredients is available as well. But soy sauce on its own, I don't even try to do that. Instead, I choose the right uh, the soy sauce. And then, the, well, what I do, for example, um, I choose the neutral, a uh, good quality soy sauce, which I, in my restaurant I use Yamasa soy sauce, and based on that I uh, blend the other ingredients in there, such as like a kelp or sometimes bonito flakes, a um, bit of yuzu juice or sake or mirin or whatsoever to um, mold it into the way you want to use, um, you want to create. I think that is going to be the right way uh, to do so for now. Okay. Great, thank you. Uh, you touched base on the resting of the fish, but the term ikejimi, are you familiar? Ikejime. Yes. Ikejime, okay. Is it, is it just a thing of experience? <clears throat> Um, ikejime is the way to kill the fish. It's uh, you know, uh, well acknowledged as a most uh, humane way to kill the fish, but it's not only that. The purpose of ikejime <clears throat> is to keep the, uh, its freshness in the best condition. So basically, best condition to keep the best condition. That's the best way. What they do is that they cut off the spine, and then take off the uh, the nerves uh, within the uh, located underneath the spine. By doing this, fish literally cannot feel and then cannot move. So they cannot self destruct in a way. When after they fish the uh, outside of the water, then they can move around and they can make a blues and they can uh, damage themselves and blah, 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 blah. It's preventing um, this, uh, the possible damaging process. And then also um, uh, slowing down the process of this, what is that, the, let's say losing the, uh, the quality on its own. So when you do ikejime or shinkejime, these two methods is quite similar, but slightly different. But by doing this, you can extend the shelf life of the fish in a good condition. That is the purpose of it. Great. I think we have kind of covered pretty much almost all the questions.
Okay. That's a very good scientific explanation as well. Let's let's move on. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to the next topics, which is the uh, which I'm, um, I want to dig into a slight more detailed information um, related to the food on its own. And the uh, first thing I want to mention is the season. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, Japan has four clear uh, different seasons. Obviously, for uh, you know, was that because because of the ge geographic locations, we have the uh, the beautiful spring to start with, aggressive summer, which is very similar to the Southeast Asian summer uh, condition, uh, high humidity and uh, the high temperature whatsoever. And then the autumn time, everything is going to start to die down, and then the winter time is can be really harsh. As you can see, well, I will talk about the geographic characters of it, but uh, as you can see, the Japanese map from the Japanese map, North Central south is quite stretched out uh, you know in between and the north part of uh, japan especially around the area of hokkaido has got so harsh uh, winter the winter uh, what, winter time um, you know two meters three meters of snow overnight that is the level of the, uh, the harsh winter so this you know the, uh, the fall season uh, is the uh, the kind of part of the japanese culture connected to the japanese culture or base of the japanese culture um, then within the high standard cuisine, such as kaiseki you mentioned, um, needs to include, represent this uh, seasonal aspects within the meal by using specific ingredients or the uh, method or seasoning or texture whatsoever. Anyway, it's the three elements you need to include to recreate the seasonality within the meal. How you do is that you include these three elements. One is hashiri and shun and nagori. These three elements. What it means, hashiri is the season just about starts, representing the future. So if we are now, it's, uh, the weather starts showing the springy side of it, so that uh, we include the springy uh, uh, ingredients or way to cook, which is like another than serving the hot dishes some of the cool uh, chilled dish to be served as a part of the cold meal. And the next one is the shun, um, which is the current season, for a season, uh, best season for now. Um, this is the, uh, the representing the time um, scape of now. And then followed by the nagori is that the season that is ending, which is like in case of now, it's gonna be the, uh, the winter. Winter is ending. But by using these three um, aspects within the one course meal, you can specify where we are now in this moment. Um, dividing the season into four is not good enough for Japanese people, especially in high standard Japanese cuisine. It's all about the uh, appreciation about what we have now, what we had before, um, so that uh, we can, uh, by using these three, uh, individual um, elements, what we can do, we can recreate the detailed um, seasonal aspects within the meal. And this is the very important part of the Japanese culture. Um, one, uh, one thing I want to mention about the, um, you talked about the, uh, about the best season, umami uh, wasoeba, which is the, uh, the shun, what we call shun. And this shun is unlike the, uh, the other two elements, hashiri and nagori, is being, uh, shun is used for every single restaurant businesses in London as a common sense. Um, basically, what we do is that we create everything based on the seasonality. 
And when it comes to efficient seafood, when is the best season then? Right. Um, for example, in the British, uh, around the British water, um, for example, the uh, Dobasol, we have a very good Dobasol around uh, British water. Um, however, it's always available. But in case of Japan, it's not. Reason why is that there's a best specific season for each ingredient. So when is that? That's the, uh, the time just before the, uh, the mating season. Um, this time, specific period of time, the, uh, the, what uh, they do is that they start to reserve a lot of fat by eating a lot of food, prepare themselves to lay the egg. And because of that uh, preparation period uh, process, they contain a lot of fat within. And then because they are chasing a lot of food, they move a lot. They develop the good amount of muscle and then the good healthy fat in there. And conveniently, this fish um, comes to a season. Um, normally, even if they lived in the farther, deeper water, around this season, they come to shallow water close to the uh, land because there's much more food source for them. And then also that is the area they lay the egg to protect their egg from the predators. So um, basically, they fish on its own when, they, when it's become a season. They come to fish above within their reach. So fishermen doesn't need to go out to the further sea to catch them. But instead, they go out as a day trip, day boat, and then they catch the fish, they bring it back when, when it's fresh, after the shinkenuki or ikejime technique, whatsoever, and then they will, uh, they will be consumed when it's fresh. So the, uh, the best season is, uh, you know, it's, it's actually different be, uh, depending on the climate. For example, uh, even if it's the same Dover so the what we call season here and what, um, what we, well, they call in Japan season is quite different. So that uh, depending on where you are, um, it's quite a fascinating for you to look into this fact, when is the exact, uh, the mating season, and then, you know, the other, when is the shun. And by chasing that, you can uh, squeeze out the best out of these uh, ingredients. Right, next thing, geographic characters. As you can see from the map, um, Japan has got the long islands. And this is also affecting a lot about the, uh, the Japanese cuisine. Um, it consists of six, over uh, 6,800 islands, which is a lot of them, with the long coastline. And the mountain is covering the narrow um, what is that, the, uh, land, 66% of it. So as a result, what happened is that the surrounding, uh, surrounding sea is enriched by the volcanic water, rich water, fresh water, which is the source of the, uh, the fish and seafood. So that uh, you know, the, uh, the quality of the fish and seafood, together with the range, is amazing. And its soil is enriched by the fertile mountains. Obviously, that is growing the, uh, the lots of nice vegetables. And then this is the, uh, the, also, uh, the, uh, the reason why Japanese has got this ingredient-based cuisine structures uh, with, uh, as a kind of uh, basic uh, idea of it. Um, at, okay, because of the time, I want to move on to the next one. And next things I want to move on, and I want to look into the format of the restaurants. So first thing first, I want to mention the specialized restaurant culture. This is something unique about restaurant culture. Um, so what is it, um, you know, the exactly? Is that the focused on a single concept, either focused on the ingredient or method of cooking? Um, 
example for uh, example for this is that uh, for example sushi is the uh, the method of cooking and if you want to eat the sushi you go to sushi restaurant where only serve sushi when you enter the sushi restaurant from the beginning until the end obviously there's no sushi desserts but uh, apart from that whole meal is going to be formed only by sushi and freshwater eel as i mentioned before if you want to eat the freshwater eel you go to freshwater eel restaurant where they only serve freshwater eel dish and then they apply this same spirit of takumi so that they dig in this narrow um, category into the deepest possible level so and then that is creating the uh, what is that the, uh, setting the standard highest standard ever and mind you this is the traditional culture taken over generation after generation so that's each time you know the each decade uh, you know let's say um, these individual cuisine is developing and um, evolutionized all the time so what we call sushi is completely different from the uh, 200 years ago for example um, so that uh, you know this is the uh, the key part uh, to keeping the, uh, the standard of Japanese cuisine. And as an example, for example, like, well, other facts is that this in specialized restaurant culture, or let's say format, is, it was not common until recently outside of Japan. It was available only within Japan. Um, however, now, maybe you know the, uh, the restaurant called Araki, sushi restaurant called Araki, uh, a couple of years ago gained three Michelin star. It's been uh, it's opened the uh, the restaurant in London, and then the uh, after the few years of adjusting, um, you know, the uh, the period, they achieved the three mission star, and this will be speeded up. And then Japanese, you know, the uh, food industry structure outside of Japan will be changed accordingly. There's going to be a tempura restaurant. There's going to be a nagi restaurant, soba restaurant. You name it. A lot of Japanese, um, you know, the individual specialized restaurant culture will be exported and resetting the standard. I think that's going to be an interesting uh, restructuring process to be happening for the next ten years. Next thing, obviously, the uh, rather than focusing on one ingredient or method of cooking, there's a wide range of food uh, available. Like just like this is close to the, uh, the what we call Japanese restaurant outside of Japan, it's very similar to it. But let's talk about highest level, most sophisticated version of this format, which is the uh, the kaiseki cuisine. So, what is the kaiseki cuisine? It's been developed in the sophisticated, like you know, the uh, novel society in Kyoto to start with. And it's being um, it's, um, kept as it is, as the highest standard. It's standing on top of the, uh, the pyramid of Japanese uh, restaurant uh, pyramid, um, still now. And um, although um, they are serving a wide range of food, such as like tem they serve tempura, they serve nagi, they serve summertime sushi as well. But, uh, you know, the, compared to the sushi restaurant, it might be different, but it's still highest possible quality food they are serving. That's why it is difficult in a way uh, to be trained within this um, the category. This is where I brought up with and then the things I needed to uh, learn was much, much wider. Maybe if I cook the, uh, the sushi within this concept, Kaisei Cuisine, it was not as good or exactly the same as a sushi restaurant 
best sushi restaurant. However, um, it's been executed into the unbelievable level. So it is very kind of difficult, uh, also difficult, uh, but the challenging, uh, what is that, the category to belong to. And other thing I want to mention about this Kaiser cuisine, it's not on, um, it's all about the food actually. It is a lot of things to do with the sake. Um, traditionally, the, uh, the sake was the main, and then food is uh, designed to accompany sake. Um, the Japanese word for menu, we call it kondate, and kon means the sets, the, the way to count the number of sake bottles we emptied. And then tate means stands. So basically, menu is being built for the guests to drink even more. That was the original concept of it. So the, uh, the food on its own, not only the seasonality or you know, what you want to make, but you know, the, uh, with the seasonal um, offering, and then the, uh, the with what you want to do traditionally and you know, whatsoever. On top of that, what you need to do, what you need to think is that, okay, what kind of sake to start with and move on to which sake? And this food needs to be accompanied with sake. It's like a wine pairing uh, is the common example, but it's the opposite way. When you're serving this food, this wine would work, but this, it was completely different way. And that is the, uh, the kind of things very good to know because the sake and the food is not drink and food, but in Japanese culture is together. You need to enjoy it, uh, enjoy that. So that uh, you know, the, uh, this might lead you to the, uh, you know, the uh, more, well, they bring you more interest uh, towards the sake and which is very good things to do. And so I recommend that. Now, this uh, the, um, kaiseki culture is a very sophisticated high-end restaurant, let's say. So obviously, um, be a lower level, in a casual level, people want to have a similar kind of experience. So that is the category, what we call izakaya. Izakaya, a lot of things, uh, a lot of people think izakaya is the type of cuisine, but it's a style, um, how you serve the dish, and then what is the concept behind it. First of all, the uh, izakaya culture is, is uh, taking over the same philosophy. Drink, it's a place to drink uh, alcoholic drink, it's a sake to start with, uh, or beer whatsoever in the modern world. And then the, uh, the food will be there for you to fill your stomach and then for you to enjoy drink. So that, the, again, food is not the main thing. So that the, there's no specific rule what you need to serve within izakaya culture. So it's, in a way, it's very similar to the Spanish tapas, but sake uh, is, again, uh, is more prioritized compared to the food. That is the izakaya culture. Now, uh, let's move on to the Q&A. Any question, please? Yeah, I just missed one question before. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the rationale and significance of soy, seaweed, and miso in Japanese cuisine? <laughs> why is salt not used as much and soy sauce preferred? Um, okay, so these are the basic, basic seasoning uh, agents from, uh, for uh, Japanese cuisine. Starting with the dashi stock, for example, kombu is the, uh, the key of Japanese stock together with bonito flakes. And then this has been developed for a long, long time. But the uh, interesting thing is that in the Tokyo area, mainly we use this uh, bonito and com uh, well, the stock taken from the bonito and the camp, uh, kombu. But uh, you know, as I talked about uh, social backbones, basically the, uh, what is that? in the Kyoto area, they prefer the more cleaner, sophisticated flavor. So they only use the, uh, the kelp 
obviously they use um, the, uh, the Bonito as well, but compared to Tokyo, they prefer to use the kombu uh, things. And then that is existing as a base of the flavor combinations whatsoever. And miso and soy sauce is the main kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, the seasoning agents, um, which is actually clever. Um, Japanese food is, is not much things to do with the meat. It's a lot more things to do with the fish and the vegetable. And these two uh, main seasoning agents has got the, uh, the very, very useful characters to it. For example, if it's, well, both miso, uh, miso and then the, uh, the soy sauce, it uh, has got a strong um, you know, the, uh, effect to take off the fishiness from the fish. And on top of it, adding the umami flavor because of this fermentation process, blah, blah, blah. Uh, those are the thing. And then the soy sauce is normally used as the uh, dipping sauce or, you know, base of the uh, seasoning, let's say. But the miso, difference between the miso, miso is that the miso has got much more depth. It's like, you know, thick wall, um, while the soy sauce has got much more cleaner in a way it's it's kind of a translucent flavor and then the, uh, the milky flavor in a way it's like you know the thick flavor that is the kind of definition or like a difference of uh japanese cuisine so it's quite rare it's not common let's say it is exist but uh, it's quite rare to mix soy sauce and the miso together as a main kind of seasoning agent because they're going to fight each other uh, am i answering the questions yeah i think i think you have covered different elements but in a very Clean, clean way and clear way. Uh, with regards to that fish, yeah. apart from Billingsgate Market, which mm -hmm. the answer was given by another student, Tiffany, where is the best place to buy fresh fish in London? Uh, it's a difficult question. Um, in case of my last one, what I'm doing is that uh, I'm working closely with the Japanese fish supplier, uh, which is more like mainly dealing with the, uh, what is that? the, uh, the commercialized restaurants. So they don't have a shop. They have a shop, but their product in the shop, and then uh, you know the, what they supply is completely different. So what I'm doing is that using the uh, the fish supplier called Pesky Fish. Um, it's commercial fish supplier. However, because of this situation, now they are delivering to uh, home as well. Basically, what they're doing is that they are directly connected with the fishermen. Instead of going, to, uh, you know, the uh, relying on the uh, main source to be from the uh, Blingiscate, they are directly contacting, uh, connected with the fisherman. So fisherman is updating through this modern app. Okay, I'm in the sea here today, and I catch this, I catch this, I catch this, and then the condition is this, and then who wants to buy it? Then this information through the app is come up to me so that I said, okay, this may take it. Can I have this? Can I have this? Then they're going to uh, box it and then put it on a train or like, uh, you know, using the delivery company and then they deliver it to my uh, restaurant. That is the, uh, the kind of, for me, best source of uh, fresh fish and uh, seafood. And that is also supporting in a different prospect. All these sustainable fishermen in the UK are suffering from this uh, difficult moment because the massive vessels is scraping off the whole seabed and they're catching whatever the fish they can. They are talking about tons of fish. And in the net, they were damaged in lower quality. However, it's been you know, the, uh, taken over the market. So these sustainable fishermen are suffering. But using this uh, pesky fish, um, Basically, we are purchasing the fish in a much higher prices from 
directly off from the fishermen. So quality is guaranteed. We are supporting sustainable fishermen, and then the uh, these fishermen is keeping the uh, uh, environment. So it works for both of us. That's great. And how long have you been working with pesky fish? Uh, it's been a couple of years now, and then the. Uh, after this lockdown, I'm expanding this, uh, you know, the process to be much more deeper level. So hopefully, it's going to be a much more fun as a chef. <laughs> what kind of short grain rice is used for sushi, and is that that, is it that much different from Western kinds of rice? Okay, so Japanese rice uh, is completely different from the other rice, especially long grain rice is completely different. Um, it's strange, but the Japanese rice, even if it's for sushi or steamed rice as well, it needs to be sticky enough, but it's not too sticky. That is the condition of it. And then the, uh, the majority, well, the, uh, nowadays it's uh, widely available. Japanese rice is widely available. So that, uh, if you can get the Japanese rice, please do stick to it if you want to recreate the Japanese quality. And uh, if you have to use the other products, try to use the Japanese, uh, the specific rice family grow in Spain or States. It has got the cl uh, close uh, conditions uh, with the Japanese original one, um, so that uh, it contains more moist and that they soak up more moist because they are grown in water field instead of a dry field. Um, so that uh, water field raised uh, plants, I mean rice, can observe a lot of water and then create a lot of starch. And then, you know, they're that creating this uh, right balance of stickiness. So I strongly recommend to use the Japanese rice for that. Great. Thank you. I have a, a question following on from the, the conversation we had with Ikemi. Ikemi Ikejimi. Technique. Yeah. Why when killing fish, the suffocation techniques used more often around the world than the Ikejimi technique, when the last is obviously much better and have better results at the final product in the length of time? <laughs> okay, so for it's example... just questioning other cuisines around the world for the technique used <laughs> in the fish. Okay, so this technique actually started to be exported to a uh, wider uh, range now. Uh, for example, in France, uh, there's a, uh, I think, a restaurant, uh, well, original restaurant in Tokyo is called Kochu, it's a Michelin style restaurant. When they opened their branch, basically what happened is that uh, they uh, suffered from the source of the fresh ingredients. So they went down to the fish boats and then they, uh, they get a special with the, uh, the training course, how to kill the fish and blah, 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 blah. And then the, uh, it became quite popular now. And then we did exactly the same. Me, personally, uh, has been, uh, well, building the growth relationship with the Cornish fishermen since like 10 years ago. And what I'm doing is that I visit them and support them. If they are going out to the sea, I'm going about and help them to catch the fish whatsoever. And I learn something and then I teach them how to kill the fish and blah, 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 blah. So that uh, those techniques is widely spread now. But, uh, you know, in case of Japan, again, the, uh, it's very geeky, geeky level um, because of the original fish quality. For example, when I first came over to London 20 years ago, for example, more, more than 20 years ago, there was almost impossible to look for the, uh, the um, get the, uh, the sashimi quality of the fish because they didn't have the tradition to do, uh, to serve this uh, raw fish as it is. So it's totally understandable. And then we need to spend a good amount of time to develop this market to the next level where I want to take it to. So, uh, you know, it's on the right direction, but still taking the time. 
I guess. Okay. There has been a flurry of questions coming around, but I'm going to wrap up with one or two. And if you can just wrap it up in a few words. So in terms of Japanese fine dining in London, what are the mm -hmm. elements being played in desserts? This is specifically referring to desserts. Is traditionally mm -hmm. is traditional wagashi, wagashi common? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, when, it's, uh, when we talk about wagashi, it's, it's too Japanese in a way. Sweet bean paste uh, or like a gooey mochi texture. Mochi texture, although starts to get changing, recognizing it as a kind of present texture, but uh, unfortunately it's quite difficult. So what we were doing now, for example, in my restaurant, is that using the Japanese elements in the correct way, which is like you know the uh, using matcha or whatsoever, but not overpowering it, and the flavor combination or texture is trying to recreate the closer to the original style of Japanese sweets. But uh, the actual format needs to be like you know the uh, taking the Italian or like uh, uh, let's say French uh, pastry technique. That is the uh, the actual fact for now. But I'm sure it's going to change soon. Okay, great, thank you. Could you tell us a bit about Koji? Koji. <laughs> okay, very deep work on my pronunciation but... here. <laughs> um, yes, um, Koji oh. is the big, big, uh, you know, the, uh, the topics for now, even in Japan as well. There are lots of uh, variety of Koji, but this is the base of, uh, well, the, let's say it's the uh, base of fungus fermentation. Uh, specific Koji fungus can, uh, well, to be uh, settled on the uh, any kind of grain, may, uh, commonly rice or uh, what is that, the barley or so on. Um, and you can get this, uh, the base koji um, as a dry product, which can uh, last long uh, in the, uh, the room temperature. And then all you need is just to activate them around 60 degrees with enough moist and keeping the, uh, cultivate them for, uh, let's say, like, you know, the week or so, then the, uh, it's been fully, like, you know, they activated. Then you can start this as a, uh, it's like a sourdough starter, for example. Sourdough starter, mixing it with the, uh, the main dough mix, and then the fermentation start, so that you can use the fermentation process immediately by using this koji. And then this koji has got so much, uh, so much other uh, benefits health benefit to start with, and then also in terms of flavor as well, is break down the, uh, the proteins into a uh, very kind of, what is that, the, uh, the, a lot of umami flavor. So it's uh, increasing the umami flavor together with the tenderization of the meat and then preserving the food. So it's a lot of, a lot of goodness in there. And then the, uh, because the koji start to be available in the outside of Japan, Recently, I think it's going to be a big, uh, you know, the trend coming in based on the koji. It'll be the next trend, I assume. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask one more question and I'm reserving sure. the rest of the questions for later. Okay. For the next session. Do you think Hokkaido is better than other parts of Japan for fish and meat exports, seeing as the cold weather will make the animal fattier? Sorry, say that again. I didn't yeah. get the question. Hokkaido. Hokkaido, than... yeah. Yes, other parts of Japan for fish and meat exports. Seeing as ah, cool. Okay. Um, to be honest, the uh, Hokkaido is a quite a difficult uh, part for the uh, any kind of uh, livestock, such as like a cow or whatsoever, mm. uh, and the best of all as well because of the harsh winter. 
um, their harsh winter is, is close to the Russian weather, so that uh, everything grows around there. It's very extremely limited, and because of that, a uh, majority of the root vegetable uh, is the main thing they grow around there. And then uh, for the uh, live kettles, for example, it's too harsh. And then the, uh, the main food, uh, like glass, uh, it doesn't grow there. Much. Mm-hmm. So it's not ideal, except the some of the fish and uh, well seafood, especially like crabs or like uh, uh, sea urchin, whatsoever. Is they prefer the cold water. So for those items, it's good. But otherwise, when you talk about the beef or whatsoever, the uh, more lower side of Japan is a lot better than the north part of Japan. Okay, one one just one question to finish off this particular thing. I was. So, uh, what's the most important factor in choosing a good wasabi? It's a very interesting question for many. Okay, so wasabi, if you can uh, get a fresh wasabi and then use it as uh, quick as possible. Um, the thing is that uh, what we call wasabi in a, choose, a tube or like powder shape is not actually 100% wasabi. Majority of the time is the colored horseradish. Uh, it's been kind of used as a wasabi, but it's not. And when you use wasabi, uh, what you need to realize is that uh, it needs to be fresh, first of all. And the oxidization is the most important thing. If you, um, you know, the, the wasabi roots on its own, it doesn't taste like a wasabi at all. It's just bitter. But, uh, you know, the, by using the fine and greater, what we, or what we are using in Japan is a, a greater made out of shark skin, dried shark skin. Shark skin has got rough, fine texture, so that yep. it uh, helps the oxidization. So that's the best way. And then after grating, you need to wait three to five minutes. Um, this three to five minutes allow them to be oxidized. Then they will release the sweetness and then the spiciness together. And then this um, will be lost after 10 minutes. So f- using the flesh one is better. And by the way, there's a, a British wasabi company called the British Wasabi, which yes. we are using, is they are producing the amazing quality of wasabi, which I'm fairly in love with and crazy about. Well, since you said that, could you just tell us how much a kilo of wasabi is? Ah, it's very expensive, let's say, per piece of wasabi like this. Mm. Well, it's, um, you know, it costs like 30 pounds or something. So yeah. serving the uh, wasabi on its own, um, because yeah. a lot of customers are asking for like, you know, oh, can I have a kisra wasabi, a kisra wasabi, a kisra wasabi. It's killing my business. <laughs> but in terms of flavor, it's amazing. Great. Chef, I think we need to move on to the next sure. segment. And I will ask the questions which has been coming up in our, at, the, at the end of the session. Sure. So next topics I'd like to talk is the street food culture in Japan. Just like the, all the other countries, street food in Japan is taking a big part of it. It's connected to, deeply connected to everyday life and most casual way. However, still, difference, only difference is that they're still applying the spirits of takumi. So a um, good example is that the sushi, for example, like as I mentioned, Araki is a three Michelin star. And then the, uh, uh, if you want to have an experience, you need to um, at least like pay 400 pounds for it without the drink but uh, you know the even this sushi is being uh, is starts its uh, origin uh, from the streets and then it was not even sold it was exchanged with rice that is very interesting again um, it went through the spirits of takumi and then the the, the uh, air evaluated uh, like upgraded into uh, you know the current sushi style now but it's only 200 years of history 
And then it's starting from the streets. And then now it's world well-known Japanese food. It's iconic Japanese stereotypical food. So it's something, um, you know, they're showing the Japanese, uh, what is that, the mentality, again, going back to the original conversations. And other interesting fact I can say is that the streets culture is much more vibrant. So again, going back to the original social backbones, it's uh, originated into the Tokyo area most of the time. Um, so sushi, again, it's, uh, you know, they invented in our street of uh, the Tokyo area because Tokyo area has got much more chic and uh, a vibrant culture back in that time. Mm-hmm. However, the, uh, within the area of Kyoto, which is a sophisticated culture, also there are a lot of people working for this noble society as uh, usual people. So they obviously want to have this kind of street food culture. So uh, Osaka, which is uh, next to Tokyo, they took over the culture of the street food. So that that's why the, when we talk about the street food culture in Japan now, Osaka is the one of the biggest in Japan, and then followed by Tokyo and then other regions. So it's it's quite interesting how the uh, the what's that the uh, the street food in Japan has been developed. As you can see from the background, you can see the noodle. Um, this ramen noodle is one of the good example. It's imported only uh, about 100 years ago as uh, like one of the part of the Chinese food. And then it's been, um, you know, the, uh, what is that? They brushed up with the uh, concept of takumi. And now in Japan, there is a, a noodle bar with the Michelin star. So this is the, uh, what is that? The, again, representing the Japanese culture on its own. Very interesting. And next topic I want to talk about is the following culture in Japan. Historically, um, how we um, started dealing with after this uh, closure of the other uh, country, how we start to um, be influenced by the foreign culture. The biggest wave came in after World War II. Um, after World War II, um, we were forced to adapt foreign culture. And then the, uh, the what we call GQ, the, uh, what is that, the... Uh, the American uh, government body who set the base in Japan to be assured that Japan is going to be follow our standard for their standard. Uh, they force us to stop a lot of traditional Japanese culture and then um, accept their culture. It was a very confusing time, I believe. Studying the history is a lot of different kind of uh, elements coming up. And then it doesn't look like even one simple city. It's got so many different faiths. But somehow we developed the really good adaptation skills, uh, I believe. And this adaptation skills is applying to all the other industry as well, such as like, as you probably heard that the Japan was used to be, like back in 10 years ago, it was one of the most advanced country for technologies, any kind of technologies. And then the, uh, you know, that is because of this adapting skills. And, you know, that applied to this, uh, what's that, the, uh, the foreign culture in Japan in general. So now this foreign culture is became a deeply, you know, the uh, take part of the, uh, the Japanese culture. Uh, so that uh, if you visit the Japanese family home and then uh, invited for a meal or something, you will be surprised. You will be served a lot of foreign cuisine, such as like uh, pasta or like uh, what is that, the shunitsos or whatever these kind of things. Um, you will find the difficulty to uh, you know the uh, accept the fact right in front of you. Um, however, it comes how not however, but automatically it comes with the uh, the bit of pain, which is the loss of 
the traditional culture. And that is why I wanted to talk about this uh, you know, cultural side of Japanese food uh, to everybody here. Um, because you, know, you are interested in uh, Japanese cuisine, which is amazing. But uh, if you take the ingredients or skills whatsoever as it is, it's, it's nothing to do with the culture. But the cultural part is the most important thing. At the end of the day, as a chef, what we were doing through the food is telling the message showing what's in your mind to us to the guest and without having this strong concept to get based built based on the philosophy understanding philosophies you know the, uh, there's not much things to tell then there is the, with the whichever the dish you create is going to be much more commercialized or like uh, you know the personal uh, too much personalized uh, in a way and that is uh, that is not what i want what i want uh, for everyone as from the Japanese point of view, is to uh, take over the culture of Japan and help us to preserve this beautiful culture of Japan. Hope you understand that. Um, next thing, I want to talk about the Japanese food culture outside of Japan, and then its challenges as well. Um, because um, you know, the, uh, this is uh, in, uh, well, including us. Basically, we are interested in Japanese cuisine, and well, I am personally uh, doing this uh, my own project as a fusion-style Japanese restaurant owner. But uh, it always comes with the challenges. So through the uh, look back the a uh, little bit of history, how um, Japanese culture has been exported and then accepted from the, uh, the foreign people. And then they also the its future, look into the future. And then if you could get the uh, idea what's in my mind, that's the, uh, the ultimate goal for me. So, um, first of all, um, Japanese cuisine, as everybody knows, uh, is became renowned cuisine. Um, not only a sushi or tempura, but the Japanese cuisine on its own in, in general is becoming very popular in worldwide, which is great, which is great. But there's always been challenges. Well, it's a challenge, it's the cultural gap mainly. Limited access to the key ingredients as well. Still, um, you know, we have a limitation um, uh, in terms of availability of ingredients compared to Japan. However, it's become a kind of good enough level now. Um, so I think that is going to be the secondary part. But the first thing is the cultural gap. Without understanding, uh, lots of people uh, start to consuming and following the Japanese cuisine, which I feel quite the danger into it. And as a chef, we need to be specialists. We need to realize that what we are doing is that we are taking the cultural developments through what we were doing. So that we must have good knowledge and the philosophy behind you know, the, uh, what we do. And in order to do so, this, um, you know, the uh, understanding the culture is the most important thing for me. And uh, for everybody, I hope, uh, you know, everybody agree to it. And this cultural gap will always be there. Um, it's not going to be taken off, at least for the next 50 years, I guess. But uh, this cultural gap always give me, a, give me a headache, for example. If I want to recreate the, uh, the traditional Japanese kaiseki cuisine in here in the UK, it is impossible because of the season, uh, customer, and then, you know, the, uh, what is that? The culture in general, food uh, ingredients availability is impossible. So rather than recreating it, what we are doing is that the future challenge, which is what? adapting the uh, the local culture and the developed new standard but keeping the right fo uh, format or like a structure of the genuine japanese philosophy 
I'm talking about this example out loud uh, within the Japanese cuisine. But wherever you are coming from, it doesn't matter. I think this same uh, rule will apply. And by keeping you, uh, well, for you to keep this uh, genuine identity where you're from, um, I think future will goes into the right direction, which is like in a good way, there's not going to be a border and wild cuisine will be developed. However, keeping the right portion, right quantity, right amount of the, uh, the philosophy behind. I think that is the most important thing. One of the example when we talk about this, uh, outside, uh, the food culture in, uh, outside of Japan uh, is that uh, Nikkei cuisine. Um, it's a very good example, actually. The, uh, the Nikkei cuisine, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, it's the, uh, the basically the, uh, the cuisine created in Peru um, together with the Japanese immigrants settled down at the uh, very end of 19th century. They were, uh, they were sent to uh, Peru as a manual labor working in a farm. Uh, but uh, obviously they didn't have any Japanese um, what is that? The, uh, the ingredients whatsoever. So what they did is that uh, after they settled down, they started making their own soy sauce, miso whatsoever, little by little, and then start to be creating the Japanese cuisine with the available ingredients around them. And that, obviously, this uh, cross kind of, uh, what is that? The, how do you call it? The interaction in between this Peruvian cuisine and Japanese cuisine built the base of uh, Nikkei cuisine. And the Nikkei cuisine was spread out all over the South America to start with. But there's a, one key person I need to mention uh, to, um, you know, the, uh, took the big part of this uh, well, Japanese cuisine and the Nikkei cuisine to be spread all over the world, um, which is the Mr. Nobu, the chef owner of Nobu restaurant. He basically uh, moved to uh, Peru to open his restaurant in the early 70s, and he had so much difficulties. Um, obviously, he didn't know what the um, uh, Nikkei cuisine back in that time, so that uh, he served the traditional Japanese cuisine, and he struggled because not many people, well, almost nobody, he said, uh, wanted to have a raw fish as it is. Um, they have a similar kind of dish, like ceviche, for example. It's technically, it's low. It's, uh, you know, they marinated into, in the, uh, the lime juice and so that it's on the surface, it's changing the color, it's marinated because of the acid. But uh, it's uncooked, it's raw conditions, but they cannot, uh, they couldn't accept the raw fish as a sashimi or sushi. So one day he served the sashimi dish as an appetizer and then went back to the kitchen to cook something and prepare the next dish. So he put the, uh, the pan um, with the olive oil and put it on the flame. And then the, uh, the first dish was sent back from the guest, untouched. And then the, uh, the guest was saying that, uh, okay, how can I eat this raw fish? You know, the, it's not safe. And then I don't want to eat this. And the Mr. Nobu was uh, really kind of depressed. And the struggle, okay, how can I do it? What can I do? And then, then, you know, while he's thinking, he just realized that, okay, behind him, there's a smoking hot pan was there. And then he quickly took it out because otherwise it's going to get uh, fire. Then he looked at these two dish, well, the dish sent back, and then the smoking hot pan. Okay, but if I cook, put this oil on top of the fish. So he did. And then it was seared. 
by the uh, the oil. He just uh, drop the, uh, the uh, uh, what is that? Bit of sesame oil to adapt the flavor, and then they add an acidic sauce, and then send it back to a customer, and they enjoyed it. They enjoyed it, and that was the breaking point. I mean, you know, the game changer. And from them, he creates a lot of a lot of what we call translated dishes, keeping the uh, what is that? The uh, good amount of the uh, Japanese traditions, and then adapting the local culture together. And then soon after that, as you know, Nobu now, he became a world uh, well-known chef. And then, but uh, you know, the rather than his popularity, what I learned through my experience in Nobu was that this mentality, reason why he could do it is that he never sacrificed the original traditional sides, respect towards the traditional uh, culture, and then respect us, he respect the uh, the local people's culture and ended up create the uh, the world well known cuisine, and then the, uh, the his empire was built for now, and that is exactly what I'm taking over. Obviously, I don't I don't believe that I can be like Mr. Noble, but uh, what I'm trying to do, at least as a person who went through his filters, I need to take over this and develop the uh, the new style of world standard without sacrificing any cultural part of any cuisine or like local people. That is the ultimate goal. And then that is the uh, the kind of things I wanted to share today. Hope you understand that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, we will now move on to a few question and answer sessions here. Sure. I have quite a few flurry of it, but I will probably <laughs> be uh, shortlisting some of it. Um, sure. It's been a great participation with regards to questions and shooting some excellent uh, foresight into some of those. Uh, one question, what are the main differences between Chinese and Japanese cuisine except from sushi? Okay, um, Chinese cuisine is a lot more uh, focused on the cooking side, especially high temperature cooking with the spices. Um, obviously, as they are attached to the mainland of Asia, you know, the, uh, the Atlantic, basically they are more influenced by the lots of foreign cultures. So they have a lot more access to the, uh, the spices whatsoever, and then the cooking techniques as well. But in case of Japan, um, we focused on more kind of less greasy, cleaner, uh, simple uh, food structure. Um, so the seasoning on its own, even miso paste or like, you know, the soy sauce um, we have, both country is completely different. Where they make, where uh, we make is completely different. So I think the, uh, the most characteristic difference is that uh, whether if um, you are uh, evolved with the foreign culture, including the Middle Eastern culture, or uh, keeping the uh, you know their own culture by locking down ourselves, that made significant difference. I think. Okay, is it possible to apply Takumi culture in nowadays in in the culinary world now? And how sure. do you think it will work? <laughs> culture of Takumi is the way of life. So, uh, for example, like if well, you know. Um, technically, we are entering to this uh, world of takumi uh, because we are entering the chef. Chef industry is the world of takumi, definitely. So that depends if you choose, you know, how you choose, how you get involved, how you develop yourself uh, is the uh, the only key. 
So you already have a ticket and then you are half step in already. So rest of the things is you. All you need to do is be humble and be greedy <laughs> in a way. That's all you need to do. Um, one last question I would like to kind of just wrap it up. Mm -hmm. um, and before that, um, if any of the students or anybody who is participating in this particular session, if you want to contact Chef Masaki, um, there will be uh, yeah, uh, the details are there. It's Instagram handle and also the the restaurants handle. And it's in Chelsea uh, and I'm pretty sure a few of the participants here will be coming and gracing your restaurants very soon. But before we finish off the session, how do you foresee the restaurant industry responding to post COVID world in terms of producing or uh. menu design business plan? I know this is uh, <laughs> it's a long topic, but if you can just probably compress it into very few words and uh, we'll kind of say adieu. OK, so it is um, obviously extremely difficult time for all of us, uh, uh, you know, within not only this industry, but for everybody here now. But uh, I think this could be a turning point uh, because restaurant industry in a big city like London, especially, is chased by the uh, lots of covers and then uh, what is that? The uh, everything, the uh, all the ingredients, the choice is right in front of you, and then you don't really have a time to sit down and think what you were doing. And you know, this is the moment that I can for for me personally is looking back what I'm doing. And then preparing myself to the next stage, which is what I think. Um, you know, the uh, I want to focus, uh, the focus on the conceptual side of it more. That's why this actual the uh, what is that the cultural side of Japanese culture uh, to talk to you guys through is helping me as well. Um, it's just uh, you know the recapping all my experiences, and then based on that, I'm building the new concept, which is like you know the uh, this let's say uh, pandemic is showed us a uh, danger of this virus whatsoever so that's a hygienical side of the uh, you know uh, what we do is needs to be improved obviously but more uh, importantly a uh, whole nation in a worldwide level is gathered together and then try to fight against this virus which is a brilliant thing and then this should be kept in the different um, aspects as well which is the environmental health um, if you consider what we do, we are dealing with the tons of food source, and that is creating the massive issue environmentally. Like livestock is creating the CO2 problem and air pollution, blah, 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 carbon footprints, and also mass produced product or mass, uh, what is that, the overcropping the, uh, the natural food sources. Uh, these are causing a lot of issue. And in order to get over these issues, all we need to do is to gather together as uh, uh, people who's getting involved in this food serving industry and then try to make a difference little by little. That is the most effective way and the only way to uh, improve these situations. And this could be a good start of uh, this making the change process for now. So I'm taking it um, in a very positive way. And I try to uh, come up with the better solutions uh, when we open the re, uh, reopen the restaurant, and hoping that uh, world will be start to moving towards to the right directions in a whole nation level. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, one last thing to just finish on on the same regard with the post-COVID situation. Um, known as a very small neighborhood restaurant, um, Dining SW3. 
what would you think is your restaurant how how it will affect the your approach in the future in terms of seating capacity social distancing without losing the dna of the restaurant i believe when it comes to the staffing you have i would say more than 100 people yeah 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 and staff working it is a considerable size of a substantial <laughs> people working in a restaurant so if you can just touch a little base on that and i think we will wrap it up sure um basically the uh, the restaurant concept on its own is this uh, together with this uh, what is that with this requirement let's say to uh, uh serve the food in a safe environment it's completely different thing um concept wise it's not going to change uh, at all what we do my concept our concept as a chef in general first of all we serve a customer to make people happy um through what we do and that's exactly what we do and obviously there's going to be a requirement reducing the number of the people and then uh, you know we need to create the enough amount of gap between the tables and then for example like for all the front of house staff to wear the gloves and then the whole, all the, uh, the sushi chef might need to wear the gloves which I don't like it but uh, you know the, to keep the, uh, the safe side obviously what that's what we need to do and I'm more than happy to do so so most importantly and um, what i can say is that we will work around it and most important part is to keep our identity as it is without being affected thank you chef this was a very very interesting aspect of hopefully you know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for this interesting session it's very thank insightful very much. in terms of this very unique subject on the cultural study we have seen so many other aspects of it but Thank you very much chef chef Musaki Musaki san thank you very much again. thank you and thank you once again to all who participated in the session hope you all found very interesting and there has been a flurry of positive comments for you chef Musaki i will be wow, sharing some information for you <laughs> thank uh, you have a good day all wherever you are stay safe stay safe thank you bye bye Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Plate, Industry Talks by Le Cordon Bleu. Keep up to date with all our news and episodes by following us on social media or by signing up to our newsletter. Links are included in the episode notes. Until next time, a bientôt.